The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Hey, Love City Church and uh, all who may be joining us today through the live stream. Welcome. I'm Pastor Vince, and uh, I'm excited to study God's Word with you today. Uh, I do want to say, before I get into that, uh, to those of you like me uh, who could have really benefited from being gathered together physically this morning, uh, I am sorry. We had uh, a few more confirmed COVID cases after the initial ones that we knew about, and we really needed to give it uh, one more week for everyone to properly quarantine so that we can gather together safely next week. Uh, And so I appreciate your prayers around all of that. And... uh, your just grace towards us as, as a church. Uh, please turn with me to uh, the book of Mark chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 17 through 31. We're continuing through our series. Uh, it's called Servant King. We're just working verse by verse through the book of Mark. Um, as you turn in there, I just, you know, I don't know about you, but uh, I've felt like my head has been in a vice uh, since Wednesday, trying to wrap my mind around the events in D.C. and and broadly, uh, kind of ringing out from there. I've spent a lot of time uh, contemplating how God's Word and His Gospel would call us to think about and to respond to these things. And God, in His providential mercy, has He's done this so many times that I, I can call it consistent, um, and I, I really shouldn't be surprised at this point, but as I labored in the scriptures that we were already planning to be in this week, uh, I saw answers to many of the questions that I was asking. And I don't know about you, but for me, it's when God does that, it's, it's a blessing to me. It, it feels to me like the affirmation of a loving father that, that we are on the right track. And even though there is still so much I don't understand, I feel him showing me that, that we're right where he wants us to be. And there's great comfort in that. So uh, what I'm hoping we can do together now is, is just feast together on God's word today because we surely need the sustenance and the strength that it provides for us. So we're going to read, as I said, Mark 10, 17 through 31. As I did last week, I'm going to encourage you to either have a Bible out, an app out. Um, the, the words will be on the screen, but best case scenario is that you are, are following along uh, yourself as well. Okay? So we're going to read Mark 10, 17 through 31. Okay? As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. And said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving. 
for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for the a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers, sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Praise God for his word. Amen. we got work to do, as you can see, friends. I want to start out and, and go at this a little different today. I, I really think that this particular set of verses, it's important to lay out clearly what is not being said, because there is a lot here that is commonly misunderstood and misconstrued. So the first thing I want us to look at is uh, the way the, the rich young man here addresses Jesus, um, good teacher, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus answer? That's where it starts to get a bit confusing, potentially. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And, and why did Jesus say that? Well, the, this word good, uh, in this context and connotation, it, it had a it, had, it gave the idea of sinlessness, right? And so it was, it was not common. As a matter of fact, everything I read said you won't find another reference to a rabbi or a teacher being called good in this way. And so I'm not 100% sure what the motives of the young man were as he, as he said this to Jesus, uh, but it can, it can almost seem like Jesus is, is denying that he is good. And because in, in this context, this, this goodness they're talking about, has the connotation of sinlessness, it's also really pointing to his divinity. And what I want you to see, what's important to know, is that Jesus was not denying that he was indeed good and thus divine, but he was inviting the young man to truly consider, to truly consider the meaning of what he had said. And maybe not only the young man, but those also listening to this interaction. Uh, Jesus is good because he is God. Okay? Amen. Uh, the second thing I want to just point out to you is that this directive Jesus gives the rich young ruler about selling all uh, that he has and giving it to the poor, it, it had a specific application to him. And I'll unpack that more as we, as we move along. But I just want to say plainly that th this is not a command to all believers everywhere. When Jesus said, sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, come and follow me. This was specifically because Jesus was dealing with this young man, and, and that'll become more clear as we do some more work through these verses, okay? Uh, let, me, let me read verse 29 and 30 to you again, because I, I need to make something clear there, okay? Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive 
a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Here's what I want you to see, what I want to make sure we know this is not saying, okay? Uh, Verse 29 and 30 are not Jesus inviting you to a get-rich Ponzi scheme, all right? False prosperity gospel preachers like to focus on the material elements of this and take it literally, as if when you give towards God's kingdom, you could get out a calculator and multiply the amount by 100, and then God is obligated to give that back to you. Okay. Well, how do we know that's not what he means? Well, it's not just houses and farms that are talked about here. It's mothers and brothers and sisters. And, and so, I mean, what, what would that mean, right? <laughs> uh, he talks about mothers and brothers and sisters and children. And, and so what, what, is, what is Jesus saying? I, I believe what he's talking about is the reality of what's going to happen as he dies for our sins and rises from the grave and, and empowers this new group of people by his spirit to be his church, his bride. I believe he's talking about the church here and, and how when we operate in the kind of unity that only the gospel can accomplish, then we become a true eternal family. And that's going to greatly multiply um, who you have in terms of those familial relations, right? Um, and, and also, when that happens, we become that, that true kind of gospel family in Christ. And then uh, really the way it's supposed to look is what, what's mine is yours and yours is mine, right? And I don't mean in some kind of cultish way, but in our hearts, man, and, and in our practice, uh, we should be for each other. And our resources should be at the ready to help serve and love one another as need arises. And uh, that, is, that is what I believe Jesus is saying there. Um, and, and when you, if, if you hear me talk about this gospel family type situation and, and adding, adding to you mothers and sisters and children and, and all of that, and if you don't know what I mean, I, I can maybe illustrate it for you because I, I saw it up close this week. We, we had some very good friends of ours over uh, for dinner, and, and this particular couple uh, do not have uh, biological kids of their own. And I got to tell you, uh, sitting there eating dinner together, and then we, we played some games together. Uh, I, was, I was so blessed and encouraged and, and really convicted by, by watching the pure joy that these friends of ours had uh, spending time with our kids. It was, it was precious, and, and it, it blessed me because it, it was an illustration of this idea, how, how the gospel makes us really the, the family of God and the, the, the amount of joy that they had in, in those interactions, both for my kids and for them, it was, it was awesome to see. And it encouraged me, but you, know, you might have caught that I said it also convicted me because I'm sitting there thinking about how oftentimes I, I take my kids for granted, um, the joy that they bring and, and how special they are and uh, what a gift they are. And so um, thanks for preaching that message to me. Uh, to those friends of ours, I... I know you know who you are. Amen. Uh, okay. That's kind of my precursor laying out what these verses are not saying, clearing up some things that maybe were a little bit foggy or have tended to be at times. Uh, so let's kind of go back to the beginning and let, I wanna, let's get all up in this business right here uh, and in these verses together because there's, there's, there's a lot here and it's good. It's challenging. 
Amen. All right, so back to verse 17. That's where, that's where we started. We see our first red flag right off, right off the rip, okay? What is it? As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's our first red flag. That's the first way we know that there's something amiss here. Because the whole idea, this, the, Jesus came to dismantle the whole idea that inheriting eternal life could be accomplished through us doing something. He came to dismantle the idea that we're reliant upon our own righteousness or holiness. He came to show us that uh, the only hope we have in these things is to recognize we can't do it and that we need to submit to him and have his help. That's the essence of the gospel, realizing that each one of us, each one of us is a sinner and that we can't make ourselves holy. We can't fix the problem of unrighteousness ourselves, but that Jesus did all that was necessary through his sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection for us to be able to have, through faith, the gift of righteousness. Not something we've earned, something we're given. And so that, that, that's, that sets the tempo and the tone here and helps us understand really how we should perceive and, and look to these scriptures for instruction, okay? Verse 18, as I already kind of alluded to, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And what I'm telling you is that, that the way this goes down is a little bit confusing, but I, I want you to hear this. What Jesus really is doing here, at least in part, is, is saying, consider, as we're having this conversation, that you're speaking to God at this very moment, right? Why did you say, why did you say I'm good? Only God's good. D do you know what you're saying? You're just trying to flatter me? But Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, 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 don't, don't say that to me. I'm not deserving of that. He just asks, <laughs> why'd you call me good? Do, do you know what that means? Amen. <laughs> he is good, and he is God. Verses 19 and 20, something real interesting I want to show you here. Okay? So, no one is good except God alone. Then Jesus puts it, starts to answer his question, put it back to him. What does he do? He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And what is, how does the rich young ruler respond? And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. It's incredibly interesting if we look at the verses and, and we look at the commandments that Jesus isolates out here. We'll notice that and sometimes this is referred to as the second table of the Ten Commandments, but that's all we see here. There, there are those, many that see the Ten Commandments as like a first table and second table. The first four commandments being vertical, right, in their orientation. They have to do with how we relate to God, okay? And then the last six being the second table, being horizontal, how we relate to one another. Of course, as I'll mention later, that, that makes sense when Jesus boils down the totality of the law to loving God and loving neighbors, right? But that Jesus only references the second side, the second table, that horizontal orientation, uh, as he lays out to this young man the, the commandments 
uh, that he's thinking about, right? And so why did Jesus, well, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus knew exactly what he was doing here. This, this is a bit of a setup. It's a love-motivated setup, as we'll see, okay? Uh, and and what, what, what are we seeing there? What's going on? Well, one, one way to summarize it, I would, I would, I'll just throw you a Spurgeon quote here that I think is helpful to see where Jesus is taking this guy. Why is he doing what he's doing? The, the specificity with which he's referring just those kind of second table commandments, the, the ones just between, what, how it affects how we relate to one another. Spurgeon said, the law is for the self-righteous to humble their pride. The gospel is for the lost to remove their despair. And we, we see here where Jesus takes the young man. And that helps us hone in on what the problem is here. What we see happening as the, the rich young ruler responds in verse 20, I've kept all these things from my youth up. We're seeing that he, this young man, is, he's missed the point. Because the law was meant to be a mirror. Romans 3.20 says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law is not only meant to be a mirror, it's meant to be a teacher. Galatians 3.24, therefore the law has become our tutor, what? To teach us what lesson? What does it say? To lead us to Christ. Okay? And here's what's, we got to conceptualize this for a minute, okay? This rich young ruler does what? I mean, the, the actions and even the words up until verse 20 are, are seeming, bows down, good teacher, there's reverence. But man, there's something going on in his heart here because, and we know that how. Well, he was standing, okay, so the law was supposed to be a mirror, right? To show us that we're sinful. The law was supposed to be a teacher, to teach us the lesson that we were in need of a savior. That's what the scriptures plainly teach. That was the point of the law. And yet, and this, this man had compared himself to the law, but what conclusion had he come to? I'm good. I've kept those things. And here's what's striking. In coming and kneeling down before Jesus, he was knelt down in front of an even more perfect mirror than the law for the job of showing us that we were sinners in need of a Savior. He was knelt down in front of the only perfect teacher. And somehow, somehow he still thought he was measuring up. Somehow when Jesus laid out this, these commandments, his answer was, well, I've kept all those. Yeah. Yeah, I'm righteous on my own merit. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. And this will become more clear as we move forward, but let me, let me just insert it here to maybe stick a stick in the spokes of our own self-righteousness. <laughs> let us not think we are immune <laughs> from this, even, even those of us who have glimpsed the beauty of the gospel and reached out in faith to receive the gift of salvation. Uh, this is a constant struggle. So let's, let's not judge the rich young man too harshly. Uh, the word is still meant to be a mirror today. <laughs> okay, so let's use it appropriately. Amen. Uh, let's look at verses 21 and 22. Where does Jesus go now? Where does he take him now? Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. I find it very interesting. Jesus is such a master at these interactions with people. 
instead of arguing with him about the legitimacy of his claim to keeping these other commandments perfectly that were referenced, that second table, right? Don't commit adultery, don't covet, don't uh, steal, don't lie. It's, it's, the, it's the ones that have to do with how we're relating to one another. And, and Jesus doesn't argue with him about whether his claim to keeping all those from his youth is, is accurate. What did Jesus do instead? He took him to the first table of the Ten Commandments. Those that are vertical in their orientation, the ones that have to do with how we relate to God. How do we, how do we see that Jesus did that? Because maybe it doesn't seem apparent to you. It, it isn't necessarily that apparent, and that's why these scriptures are oftentimes misunderstood. We know two things about this man. The focus tends to stay on one, but we need to realize that there's a couple dynamics at play. This young man was rich, and he had power. He's a rich, young ruler. Okay? Most would say uh, that, that know about these things. A Roman official, if he was a Roman ruler, he probably wouldn't have run down and knelt down and called Jesus good teacher. So he probably has some kind of status uh, within the community of Israel. We're not sure exactly, but he's got money and he's got power. Okay? Now, by telling, Jesus knows how to get right down to the heart of the matter. He's, he's not going to get into a long, drawn-out thing about, hey, well, are, are you sure you've never coveted? Are you, are you sure you, the specifics on that second table? No, no, no. By telling him, by, by Jesus telling this rich young ruler to go give away all that he had and follow him, that's the second part of this, Jesus was showing him clearly what stood between him and obeying the first commandment. Church, pop quiz time. I know you really enjoy these. What is the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Here's here's what we're working with. This young man likely believed what many in that time believed. And sadly, what many still believe today, that money and power were a sign, a guaranteed sign of God's blessing. And clearly, the sinful infection that Romans 1 says runs through every human vein ran through his as well. He clearly worshipped created things, not the creator. Worshipped the gifts, not the giver. Because he was knelt down in front of God himself, calling him to give up all of that and to come and follow him. He couldn't do it. It wasn't just selling all the possessions, but it was the idea of coming and following him. Right? Jesus was calling him to give up his wealth and his power. Now he offered him treasure in heaven. He obviously... uh, If the man had been able to see with spiritual eyes and and discern, he would have known what Jesus offered was far better than whatever paltry scraps of of human, you know, terms of success and and power and wealth can can ever offer a person, but but he wasn't. He was blinded by those things. And here's, I want to float this to you. I truly think that this rich young ruler, believing that he was blessed by God with his wealth and power and truly thinking that he had kept the law 
This is the content, this is the mentality he would have been coming to that with that great display of reverence and kneeling down and good teacher, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? I, I genuinely believe this rich young ruler expected Jesus to answer his question with nothing. You're righteous. I genuinely believe this young man thought he was. Thought what Jesus was going to do was to commend him. To lift him up as an example of godliness as, as surely so many others had. It's not the way it went though. We're a couple chapters away, but in Mark 12, we'll see Jesus hone this down even farther when he gives us the greatest commandment, right? The scribe stands up, teacher, what is, what is the greatest commandment? What does Jesus say? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. There's another time where uh, Jesus was challenged in that way, and to try to wiggle out of it, they ask, well, who, who's my neighbor? And then, of course, Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan to answer that question. I don't have time to get into that today, but uh, let me just make sure it's there hanging in the background as we work through what we're working through. So what do, what do we see Jesus doing here? Exposing. He's exposing this reality. We, we can't love money or power. We must only love God and people. We need to see that money and power have an incestuous relationship. They help one another to divide us from each other and delude us into thinking we don't need God. They piggyback on one another and fuel each other in division among us and delusion in the way we understand our need for God. And this is really what verses 23 through 27 is about. Okay, lots of, lots of debate around this, lots of missing the point around this, okay? Let's, let's just read them again quickly. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard will it be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Just quickly, I want to let you know, in case you haven't heard, people have tried to explain away uh, what these verses are saying in order to in, avoid the difficult implications of the plain meaning. A couple of ways they've done that is, because uh, that's a harsh thing, right? Um, Jesus specifically says it will be it will be. Harder than a camel going through the eye of a needle and for a rich man to enter heaven. That's pretty graphic. So some, to try to, to try to soften that, understanding how harsh it is to our ears, not keeping it in context and understanding the whole thing that's happening here, some have said that uh, the word for cable and the word for camel are very close. Um, and so what Jesus was really saying is, is it's harder for, it'll be harder for a cable to go through the eye of a needle. So in their mind, it's like not... Not a camel, that's really big and sounds really hard. So what Jesus is really saying was cable, we, mis, we misunderstood. And, and that's, 
still going to be difficult, but it's, it's not as crazy or as seem, seem as impossible. Um, I, think, I think that's really interesting because Jesus just goes on ahead, leaves, leaves the uh, example out of it, and says, without God, this is impossible. <laughs> he says what he means. He's saying that it's a, a camel going through the eye of a needle is impossible. Aside from God, so is a rich man entering the kingdom of heaven. One other way I've heard this try to be explained, and, and this, this one has a little more, uh, it's, it's, it's a little more artistic and poetic, and so it's, it definitely has some pull, but I, I, I just don't think it has anything to do with what Jesus is really saying here. There are those that have said, uh, at, at that time, cities would have had what was called a needle gate, a, a small gate in the outside wall that camels would have to get down and be uh, unsaddled of all their merchandise, and then they could shimmy through that. Uh, and that would, you know, that's how they would enter in by night instead of opening the big gates. That way, you know, roving bands of marauders couldn't attack the city. Okay? Um, and, and maybe there was needle gates and maybe that was part of the practice, but that's, uh, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. That, that sounds really nice and it even seems like, well, what Jesus is saying is you've got to shed yourself of those material possessions and then... And, and you could draw a principle from that and, and maybe even principles that accurately weave into what's being said here. But Jesus' point in saying it will be is easier for a camel to go through an eye of the needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom was to say something drastic to get your attention, to understand that what I mean is it's impossible. That's what he's saying. So let's not try to soften it. Let's, let's deal with it as it stands, as it was said. Okay? Jesus means here exactly what it sounds like, but we need to consider a couple things as we interpret that and apply it, okay? First thing we should consider. If you are alive today, right now, assuming if you're hearing this, then you are. If you're alive today and you have a device with which you can watch or listen to this sermon, then you are likely richer than the majority of people throughout world history. Okay? The issue here is not money. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. Money is just a tool. It can be used for good or for evil. But the question is, why do we struggle with loving money so much? Why does that seem to be something Jesus warns about all the time? Why does it seem like this, this harsh word about camels going through the eyes of needles and, and, and how that pertains to the wealthy being able to come to God? What what is, why is that the case? Why do we struggle with loving money so much? Because it is one of the best counterfeit gods imaginable. It is easy for us to foolishly believe that money could be our provider and our protector. Proverbs talks about it, man. The wealthy man imagines his wealth an unscalable wall. <laughs> it's not. There's only one mighty fortress you can run to and be safe. His name is Jesus. Do you know, friends, do you know how many wealthy people I've talked to that they, they truly wonder, they struggle with the thought of whether anybody truly loves them? Because they have to constantly be wondering if they love me or they just want to get close to me to try to get the resources I'm holding. And, and, and I will say this, as, as sad as that is, and it is, as sad as that is, 
at least they're wondering. Because many don't care as long as people are pretending to love them. That's pitiful. Everyone likes to think these verses about how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Everyone likes to think these verses apply to someone richer than them. (laughs) That is our first problem. The second is we forget that what Jesus said about the rich is true for every single person. See, the poor may not have the illusion of self-reliance standing between them and God, but they often do have a smug sense of self-righteousness towards those who they see as rich. Because oftentimes they assume the opposite of what many believe, which we already talked about, that wealth and blessing and power, or wealth and power is, is, always has to be equated to the blessing of God. And that's what it shows us. Oftentimes those who are poor assume the opposite, that if you're wealthy... You must have become that way through wickedness. Friends, the issue here is not riches or the lack thereof. The issue is righteousness. And the statement Jesus makes about salvation being impossible without God, his gracious and merciful intervention, the statement Jesus makes about it being impossible for someone to enter the kingdom of God without God's gracious and merciful intervention. Well, that statement, that's true for everybody. That's true for absolutely every single person. And that is much of the point of what's being driven home here in this interaction that we tend to miss because we get real hung up on uh, our own socioeconomic status and how we feel like we fit into this thing and trying to find someone else to point the finger at and or try to justify ourselves in some way. That's not it, friends. (laughs) That's not what this is meant to do. And this idea that the the real Jesus words here about the impossibility of anybody coming to God, right? Doesn't he say it? because the disciples get it. They're like, then who can be saved? That's their question in verse 26. Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, with people, it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Salvation apart from God is impossible. It's his, it belongs to him. He starts it and finishes it. He is the author of our salvation. And what we see here as we unpack this carefully is that the rich young ruler's real problem was the illusion of self-righteousness. He did not love God most of all because he hadn't yet understood how amazing it was that God would love him at all. The sin of self-righteousness is at the very center of the issues we have in this country right now. We have people standing on the opposite sides of an ideological chasm, imagining themselves to be the light, and anyone they perceive to be on the other side as the darkness. Now, let me say this real clearly. (laughs) Some of you may hear what I just said, 
and, and accuse me or, or anyone else talking like this of being some kind of coward or sitting on the fence. And um, to be honest, if, if that's your position, you, you, you can go ahead and just miss me with all of that mess because I want you to see the reality. Here's the reality. There is immense pressure being exerted by both sides of this thing to agree with them that they maintain the moral high ground and they are the righteous ones. And if you don't side with them, then you are the evil enemy. How can everybody be believing that in such a total way and be right? They can't be. Let me just say this. Don't, don't let this cardigan fool you. My wife likes when I wear it, okay? I'm not saying what I'm saying. I'm not taking this approach because I'm scared of a fight. I want to make sure we're fighting the real enemy. That's what I want to make sure of. And, and if that means stones come from both ways, hallelujah. I'm not going to worry about it. We got to stick to the truth and we got to stick with Jesus. It's our only shot. See, the problem is everybody thinks Jesus would co-sign on their divisive and demonic sense of moral superiority. And let me tell you what, the most dangerous place to stand is in the middle of that, telling both sides they've missed the point, much like the rich young ruler. That's the most dangerous place to stand. But you know what? Standing in that furnace, Rashak, Meshach, and Abednego, that was a dangerous place to be. But you know what? There was a fourth man in the fire with him. That's where I want to be. <laughs> Way rather be in there than standing on the outside of that. I want to be where he's at. I'm going to stand with Christ, man. We have to. We're his. He bought us with his blood. We don't have an option. Not one with any hope, to be sure. Here's, here's the issue. We get more, more plain. We had people on Wednesday thinking they could gain power by storming the Capitol and intimidating people. But we also had people all summer long thinking they could gain power by rioting in the streets and intimidating people. And here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. The vast majority of you listening to this right now, you weren't involved in either one of those. But the true enemy behind all of this is trying to convince you to pick a side and hate the other. The true enemy behind all of this is trying to overwhelm you with fear and convince you that you're going to be saved through putting the right person or people in positions of power. Friends, we cannot succumb to this self-righteous and demonic division. We cannot participate in these futile power struggles. We serve a king with more power in his pinky than all of the human rulers throughout history combined. Our king is Jesus. And while many on both sides of this chasm are getting more and more radicalized, it's time we get even more radical. And I realize that's, that's a pretty scary thing to say right now. What, what do I mean? What does that mean? I'm really glad you asked. I'm going to tell you what it means. First off, we all need to be moving in 
radical love. Our approach to all of this must be radical love. Friends, how did we see it right here? I don't, I don't even have to go try to get other verses. We see it right. How did Jesus respond to this rich young ruler who had a worldview that was diametrically opposed to his? This guy rolled up thinking righteousness was being, he was righteous because he was wealthy and powerful. God must be blessing me. And he literally thought he had kept the commandments to the degree that he was holy on his own. That is diametrically opposed to Jesus' worldview, which is I came into the world to save sinners because they can't save themselves. So what, what was Jesus' response to him? How did Jesus, not just his response, but what, what was going on in Jesus' heart towards him? Will you look at verse 21 with me? Looking at him. Jesus knew all that was under the surface here. That's why he went where he went. That's why he said what he said. That's why he took him on the trail he took him on. Jesus knows, okay? And what does Jesus do? 21, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. All that Jesus did with this young man was motivated by love. You know, we should also keep in mind, just processing this, that Jesus went ahead and died for this guy just like he did for you and I. We, we don't have the benefit of, of the recording of what happened. This man did walk away sad this day. Who knows? Who knows what happened when that, that, guy, that, that rabbi that he got on his knees in front of him and had that dialogue with was murdered by the Romans and then, and then there was people claiming to see him having risen from the dead. Who knows? I, I hope this guy came to his senses, truly understood his need for righteousness to be given as a gift, for holiness to be given to him because of the grace of God. Jesus could have just been setting him on that trajectory with this conversation. I don't know. I don't know. I hope so, though. Jesus loved him. A guy standing on the, the opposite side of this thing. And what does it mean? What does it mean for us to move in radical love? We've we got to look to Jesus. We've got to look to what he has shown us. 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And so we ought to lay our lives down. We're called to radical love. It's going to cost us. It'll never cost us more than it's already cost Christ, though. Even if you are getting pulled into this garbage of seeing people that think differently than you as enemies, we still don't get out of this. We can't escape the fact that our king has called us to love them. Even those who would make themselves, posture themselves up against you as an enemy, or those that you have come to be convinced are indeed your enemy. In any scenario, we are called to love. Now, let me say this. We need to ask for the Holy Spirit's help to know how to love them well, what does that look like, and for the strength to walk that out. And I'm not just talking about what we can muster in our outward expressions on this. I'm not talking about us being able to restrain our behavior in our mouths enough in order to, to fake like we love those who would be standing on, on, on different places in terms of ideology than us, and those, those that would be maybe even demonizing us. I'm not talking about faking it. I'm talking about genuinely. Jesus felt love for this man. He loved him. He truly loved him. We're going to need the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts for that to be true of us. But that's what is most important is that it's real in our hearts and then our behavior and our words and our thoughts 
will flow from that. Amen. We need the Holy Spirit's help, friends. The second thing we need to do is pray radical prayers. We need to pray radical prayers. We have to stop, friends. We have to stop believing this nonsense that the United States of America is Israel 2.0. And that somehow, because Judeo-Christian principles were a part of framing our governmental structure, that God is then obligated to guarantee us perpetual prosperity on our terms. That's not true. True. Part of our problem is we got to redefine prosperity and understand that true prosperity is to be humble before God and to know our great need for Him. And, and if, you want, if you want to look at Israel, a quick scan of Israel's history will remind us that she needed to be sat down from time to time to remember that. That the true most important thing for any person or, or any nation <laughs> is to understand their need for God, to be humble before Him. If we don't have that, then anything else we have is, is, is fake anyways. It's all counterfeit. It's, tr- it's trash. Friends, I'm encouraging us that right now we should be praying dangerous prayers at an individual level. Asking God to do whatever is necessary to humble us before him. And we should be praying the same thing for our nation. Even if either one of those means we experience personal discomfort. And in case you think I'm, I don't know what I'm saying, I want you to remember I have little children. Okay? I'm not, I'm not rooting for incredible hardship as, as the way forward, but what I'm rooting for is God's glory. And what I'm rooting for is people being humbled before his glory. And so that means whatever that takes, I'm here for it. We don't know what God's plans are for this country. We don't know, but here's what we do know. Whatever he's doing, He's working for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. We know that Jesus loves sinners, even self-righteous sinners, even ones that think they don't need him. He loved the rich young ruler. And what he is working and what he is doing and what is passing through his sovereign hands even at this moment, he's working for our good. He loves us. We can trust that. That isn't going to move or shake no matter what else does. To be clear what I'm saying, I'm calling you to pray. Radical, dangerous prayers. Asking God to humble you, whatever the cost, and to humble us, whatever the cost. If we're going to build or rebuild or whatever you want to call it at this point, anything that we build or rebuild that isn't on a foundation of humble acknowledgement of our need for God is busted from the jump. The last thing I'm going to give you is that we need to be radical promoters of peace. Radical promoters of peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And I know, some of you, I, I anticipate there's, there's a few buts out there. But, but hey, Ecclesiastes says there's a time for war. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yes, it does. Ecclesiastes does say that. Now, 
Let's consider this. After the life, teaching, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, after all of that gave us the clearest picture of who God is and how he calls us to live, what did Paul say about our warfare in Ephesians 6? Because if I say to you, we need to be committed to being radical peacemakers, and your answer is, well, Ecclesiastes says there's a time for war. Paul said that our warfare in Ephesians 6, with the revelation of all that Christ came and did and said, is that our warfare is against principalities and powers, dark forces in high places. Our warfare is not with your neighbor who is hoping that they'll be rescued by different politicians than you may be tempted to hope in. We, as followers of Jesus, we must do better at the way we dialogue with people. Friends, remember, think of this. Think of Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. How did he deal with him? God himself does not try to control people through fear. He compels them through love. And we need to follow his lead. That is the the only power that's really going to change the world. The compelling love of God. Trying to grab hold of other power sources and force other people into your ideological framework to create a, a a little human utopia. It's a fool's errand. That's, that's not going to work. Trying to bully people or ridicule them into submission is not our way as disciples of Jesus. We, friends, we cannot fall prey to the temptation to talk about people or at them. We must pray for open doors to talk with them. To talk with them. There's a, there's a difference. And, and what, is, what does that look like? What, what, is, what is different, gospel-shaped, love-motivated dialogue look like? Well, lots more than I can say today, but at least one important facet will be that we should be slower to argue and quicker to ask questions. Until we can present someone else's position in a way that they would own. What do I mean when I say that? That you could, you could give their argument as good as they can and in such a way that they would say, yes, that's exactly, that's what I mean. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm advocating for. You have just explained it like I would explain it. Unless you can do that, we have no business trying to prove them wrong. Why do I say that? Because what you have right now is people just screaming past each other. Yelling over top of each other. They're not even engaging in, in the same ideas. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. And it's destructive. This idea of not arguing with someone until you can represent their position in a way they would own, that, that, that'll go a real long way in marriages too, by the way. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Really, any, any human relational context, um, but being slower to argue and quicker to ask questions. You know, James kind of already laid that out for us. I'm just making it practical. <laughs> we should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry because the anger 
of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires, and that's the problem. we got a lot of people running around here thinking their anger is producing the righteousness that God requires, and it doesn't. It's not. So many people are screaming past each other right now, lobbing whatabouts and not taking the time to hear or understand where the other people are really coming from. This, this all comes back to that same insidious sense of moral superiority the rich young ruler had. And it leads to the sinful othering that we've been talking about as a church all year. Just like the Pharisee in Luke 18. Standing up close to the altar, feeling real good about himself, praying a prayer out loud. God, thank you that I'm not like that tax collector back there. Thank you that I'm not like these other sinners. Thank you that I stand righteous. Jesus was explicitly clear because there was someone else in the room, a publican, someone hated, who knew he was a sinner, who stood in the back of the room beating his breast in anguish over his sin, asking God to have mercy on him. Jesus was explicit about who left justified before God that day. It wasn't the guy standing in the front thinking that his righteousness was enough and thinking he was better than all these other people. It wasn't that guy. James 3.16 says, Where jealousy and selfish ambition, some of your translations will say strife, where jealousy and strife exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Every evil thing. We are opening ourselves up to, without, because, because we're not allowing the words of Christ, the teachings of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the love of Christ, the gospel of Christ, to restrain our thinking and our emotions around these things and then our behaviors around these things, we, we, are, we are opening ourselves up to every evil thing. We're contributing. For God's people, that should not be. That ought not be, friends. And let me be clear, I, I think I kind of said this another way earlier, but I, I, here's what I, I want to make sure you hear me. I'm not saying we should avoid difficult conversations. Because as a matter of fact, they are essential. Difficult conversations are the only way forward. What I'm saying is we need to do them better. Taking the posture of spirit empowered peacemakers. That's what I'm saying. And what I'm also saying with this call to a a radical approach, (laughs) this is not the time for the church to shrink back in fear, but to move forward in radical faith, confident, confident that we alone hold the antidote to the poison of pride that is tearing our society apart. We need to look at the fervor with which people out on the fringe of ideological extremes are going out into the world and creating chaos. We need to look at that fervor and at least, at least match it going out into the world as heralds of gospel hope. We should at least match their zeal and passion, if not exceed it. 
But how do we do this? How can we be radically confident that the gospel is actually the answer to these troubles? Is it, am I just saying this because I'm a preacher? <laughs> that's what I'm supposed to say. And I'm a preacher that's committed to gospel centrality. So I'm just, friends, I, I, not knowing what was coming, the Holy Spirit of God has troubled me all year long to not stop at just telling you the gospel is the answer, but to in as many ways as is possible, as many times as we can get in God's word t- together and, and I can show it and, and apply it and make it real to show you the gospel is the answer and why and how particularly, specifically. The Holy Spirit has been preparing us for such a time as this. We need to take that preparation and trust him with all the places we feel inadequate We should feel inadequate, (laughs) just so you know. There should be trepidation as we consider these things. It doesn't change what's right for us to do in this moment. How can we be radically confident that the gospel is actually the answer to these troubles? Well, part of how we do that, friends, is each of us, we remember this, first of all, that each of us in our own way Each of us were the rich young ruler. And it was the love of Jesus that set us free from the shackles of self-righteousness. We also remember that it, it is his love for us that freed us from the need to view others as worse than us in order to feel lovable. we got to remember that each one of us in our own way is the rich young ruler. we got to remember that Each one of us, it's the love of Christ that freed us from the the need to compare ourselves to others (laughs) in order to feel like we're worthy of love. And we remember that in his great love, God is still shaping us. Because even now, we are tempted to trust in our own goodness. So we remember, what what are these things I'm telling you to remember and why? I'm, I'm answering the question, how do we move forward with this kind of radical, gospel-oriented, faith-filled approach to offering hope to the world. We need to remember the things I've already said, and we need to remember even now we're tempted to trust in our own goodness. And so what does that mean? That means we're not shouting down at anybody from some moral high horse. That's not our posture. We are just children who have been embraced by the one who is actually good, And we want others to know that he will hug them too. We want others to know his embrace is waiting for them. That's our posture. We remember the gospel of Jesus Christ and we believe it is and always has been the only hope for our world. That's what it's going to take, friends. I'm praying for you. You pray for me. God said that he, in the book of Acts, he establishes the time and places where he puts us. And I'm sure many of you are wondering why. Why does he have me here and why does he have me now? The hope of the message of the gospel of Christ, his love and his mercy, that is why we're here 
right now. That is why the church exists. It's really always why we've been here. It's perhaps just clearer now than in other times how totally sufficient the gospel is for the task and how it stands alone in its ability to meet what we're struggling against, what we're up against in a way that's sufficient. I love you all. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for these well-known verses in Mark 10. I thank you. I thank you for the rich young ruler. Thank you that, Lord, you, before the foundations of the world, you orchestrated this divine encounter for Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, to run across this man, struggling with this particular set of deceptions so that we could see as a mirror our own tendency for these things, so that we could see as in a mirror the places we misunderstand. Lord, thank you for how (laughs) this interaction speaks so plainly to our moment. Thank you for the affirmation and the gracious attention you pay to us. Thank you for guiding us and leading us and being with us, Lord. (laughs) It's, It's the fact that you're with us that gives us any hope whatsoever of moving out into the world with this radical love motivated boldness that you've called us to. Lord, please help us. Help us to stop taking the posture of strife stirrers. Help us to stop allowing thoughts like that to fester in our hearts, thinking that long term, if we do that, we're going to be able to bridle our mouths. Lord Jesus, by the power of your spirit, you inspired James to say that if we can't, he wrote in your word that if we can't bridle our tongue, we consider ourselves religious, but we can't control our tongues. We're lying to ourselves and our, religious is worth, our religion is worthless, Lord. Help us. Help us, Lord. We want to we honor you and represent you well, and we want to acknowledge our great need for you. Please humble us before you, whatever that means. Because we know whatever it means, we're still in your hand. And you are actually the only one who can protect us and provide for us. You are actually the only one whom we can trust. Fully, completely, knowing you never fail. Your promises are true. You're worthy. Lord, thank you. Um, I thank you for every single person that encounters this teaching. And I pray over them right now that whatever may have offended them or struck chords, Lord, that, that the gentleness with which you approach the rich young ruler, that you would approach them in the same way. And, and I thank you for your gentleness, Lord. Thank you that though you are mighty and you could crush us in an instant, you are gentle and patient and long-suffering. Lord, help us. Help us to want to reflect that. Help us to remember that gentleness is not weakness. We can only be gentle if we actually have the power to be a threat. But Lord, help us choose gentleness and anoint us for the task. Lord, we need you desperately in all these things. We can't do it without you. Thank you for hearing our prayer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give, 
or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.